Okay, right, this is the question session. So um, you can all ask away and then we'll let there be light. Anne, uh, you said earlier speak up so everyone can hear. You said earlier that you felt that by and large things were determined. Um, determined. Loaded, but causally said, determined. Yes, right. But you said when it came to your moral decisions, you felt you had free choice, free will. How does that not make you a soft determinist, which you say you Because I'm a libertarian. Okay. I don't believe that the decisions that we do make freely are causally determined at all. Okay. Um, I would be very grateful if you could clarify for me. Um, modes of thinking. Modes of thinking. Yes. Um, so what, say a bit more are, about what you mean by that. Well, um, when you were talking about types of modality. Oh, um, I see. Yeah. And I, I don't know to what extent I'm not understanding because words are being used with a specific sense or whether I'm just missing the whole underlying meaning. Um, so to be honest, I'm not quite sure what you're asking. When I talked about modality de dicto, yeah. is this what you're asking about? Yes, and modality de re. And, okay, so modality de dicto is the way in which propositions uh, are true. So we can say 2 plus 2 equals 4 is necessarily true. So this is a way that this proposition is true, it's necessary, and Marianne is wearing purple, <coughs> it is purple, uh, is contingently true. So that's a different way of being true than that one, and that's because that can't be false, and that one can be. So I might have been wearing yellow. Very unlikely, but I might have been. Um, but 2 plus 2 is 4 is necessarily true. So there are different ways in which propositions can be true. And by the same token, there are different ways in which propositions can be false. So 5 plus 7 equals 11 is necessarily false. Uh, and Marianne's wearing yellow is contingently false. So different ways in which propositions can true so different ways different modes in which propositions can be true is modality and it's modality de dicto because it's modality of the proposition um, rather than of a thing so modality de re um, is a way in which an object has a property um, so modality de re uh, is Marianne is necessarily human that box just means necessarily um, okay so so I have the property of being human and what's more I have it essentially probably I couldn't have been a paperclip okay if 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 I was a paperclip I wouldn't be me okay and I couldn't be a hippopotamus either probably seems likely um, but Marianne has the property, Marianne is contingently or accidentally, if you like, um, five foot six. 
In other words, I could still be me if I was only five foot, um, so if I hadn't had the nutrition as a child or yeah. whatever. So modalities of way are ways of thinking about A, statements, and B, things. No. Um, no, go, go back to... Um, so modality de dicto is the ways in which propositions are true. It's not a way of thinking, it's a way in which a proposition is true. So it can be true either necessarily, or it can be true accidentally. So those are different ways in which a proposition can be true. And um, objects have their properties in different ways. So objects can have a property necessarily, or an object can have a property accidentally. Yes, okay. okay? Yes, Okay, um, the chair is blue and the chair is blue. Uh, one of those is a statement and the other is a state of affairs. That's the state of affairs, the chair is blue, that makes true this statement, the chair is blue. So we tend to use quotes to indicate whether we're talking about a, a state of affairs in the world or here I'm talking about that statement, aren't I? So I can say chair has five letters when I'm talking about this. I can't, if I'm talking about this, I'm not talking about chairs having five letters, am I? Does that help? And, and that makes true, I mean, that's neither true nor false, that just is. It either obtains or it doesn't. Either the chair is blue or it isn't blue. Whereas that can be true or false. Okay, it will be true if the chair is blue, and it'll be false if it's not the case the chair is blue. But that can't be true or false, that can be. And that makes that true or false. Does that help? And, and it's quite important to distinguish between the level of, um, if you like, language, red, uh, concept, red, and property, redness. I mean, this, this is one of the first distinctions that you've got to be able to make as a philosopher, because if you're talking about language, that um, you can say all sorts of things that you can't say about concepts and that you can't say about properties and vice versa. And getting those three levels distinct is, is really quite important. So you're, you're right to ask about the difference between statements and states of affairs. Um, you had your hand up at the back. Um, Going back to Yeah, uh, it would be nice if you could shout a bit louder. Okay. Uh, going back to yesterday when we discussed deontology and utilitarianism, you gave us the three scenarios of um, the doctor, the boat captain, and us being on the bridge and what we would do in that situation. Mm -hmm. The one thing I didn't hear was whether or not um, we, we should see or we should have a sense of responsibility towards saving our lives. And my, my question is, uh, why do we feel responsible for others? 
when we're in that position to assist them. And if we don't fill a sense of responsibility, does that mean that we're sociopaths? Or, or where should we fit in this? Okay, so, so there's several questions. Uh, so should we feel responsible is one question. Do we feel responsible is a different question. And why do we feel responsible is a different one. Which of those interests you most? Why do we feel, why do we feel responsible? <coughs> I mean, I think, I think that's an absolutely rock-bottom question. Um, why do we think that it's important to act morally? Because we do, don't we? I mean, we, we've got a very strong sense of we should do this and we shouldn't do this and so on. Well, why? Where does it come from? Um, and I mean, you can, you can give sociological answers to this. You can give psychological answers to this. And a, a philosophical answer would be a justification of why. And that's easier said than done, actually. Um, I mean, the philosopher Kant believes that uh, it's part of human nature. And indeed, he thinks it's part of rationality. So rationality and freedom go together. Um, and if you think about that, that's because you cannot f choose freely except for reasons. I mean, what would be the point of choosing freely if you weren't choosing for reasons? So freedom requires rationality. And rationality requires freedom because what would be the point of having reasons if you don't choose freely? So Kant would have said that, that rational animals are free and free animals are rational. And actually here lies the motivation for rationality because... Um, Knowing myself to be an end in myself, in other words, I want for myself certain things and what I want more than anything else is to exercise my capacity for freedom. I want to do what I want. But seeing that you are also rational beings means that you are a constraint on my freedom. Okay, I can choose anything I want as long as I don't in interfere with your similar reason for choosing uh, sorry, um, in choosing whatever it is that you want. So I can leave my knife anywhere I like, except in your chest. Um, so, so your freedom is a constraint, if you like, on my freedom. Um, and that's why we, we feel responsible for each other. I, I, you might be left thinking, you know, well, it's actually not, um, it's not somebody else's freedom that bothers me when I'm feeling responsible for them. But think of the fat man on the bridge. Would he choose to be pushed down in front of the train? Isn't his anger with you that he's going to feel in the two seconds that he plummets to the ground going to be that you have interfered with his free choice to, to stay alive? Because that's almost certainly what he would choose left to himself. And, and incidentally, if we apply that as well to the um, sailors in the engine room, um, I mean, it is interesting. Somebody said yesterday, I don't know if they're still here, that it's not just a numbers game. Was it you? Um, and actually, if the captain were, just, were to say to himself, four in the engine room, 100 in the ship, obvious. And turn the oxygen off. We wouldn't like it, would it? There'd, there'd be something wrong about that if he was just playing the numbers game. What instead do we hope he'll do? Can anyone think what, what we hope he'd do? Yes, but what would that cause him to do? 
He'd feel sorry for them. He'd what? Send a rescue squad down to the engine. Wow. If he could, he would. He would save them if he could. Yes. What were you going to say? Uh, just weigh up the, you know, look at the moral arguments and weigh it all up. But what does that in, involve? I mean, I, I think that what he would try and do, let's assume that he knows them, he ought to know them a little bit as the captain, um, he would try and put himself in their position, wouldn't he? Um, that's what, and uh, you would think, okay, if I were them, I hope that I would sacrifice myself. You know, if it was my life against the lives of everybody else in this shot, ship, I like to think that I would say, go ahead. And, and I think that if he thinks like that and he says to himself, well, actually, I know these four men, they would think like that. That's much more of a justification for closing off that oxygen than it would be if he's just thought there are four of them and a hundred elsewhere, um, do you think? And, and that gives you another reason. Again, do you see there that what he's doing is uh, he's... Um, trying to work out what they would freely choose in this situation. Now, actually, it's interesting because he might know one of them and know he's a complete shit who's, who's <laughs> you know, who's not, absolutely not going to be willing to sacrifice himself. Does that mean he shouldn't sacrifice that one? Does it? Why not? What? If you're saying, well, I've murdered him, haven't I? You know, people will be pointing the finger at me and say, well, he would turn it off, wouldn't he, because he was down there. Um, uh, no, that's not what I'm thinking. What I'm thinking is here that the sailor who is the, the one who wouldn't, say, turn off the oxygen, actually, it doesn't matter, because he should think that he ought to sacrifice himself in that condition, shouldn't he? So, so should the captain be thinking in terms of the reasonable moral man, then? Yes. That's, well, that's what he's thinking, isn't it? He's thinking that, you know, the, you know, it would be reasonable for me to sacrifice the people in this situation because it would be reasonable for them to agree to be sacrificed in this circumstance. And, of course, given that it's all in his head, he's putting himself into the position of others, um, we all know we can get this decision wrong. But you can see how that would be the right sort of decision-making rather than just making it numbers. And so, again, why do we feel responsible? Well, we feel responsible because these are people like us. You know, they're free like us. They're rational like us. They, they want the same things, roughly speaking, that we want. And if we want to be given them, you know, surely they want to be given them too. And we want them to give us them, surely that puts an onus on us. But of course, actually, there, there are all sorts of problems lie there because do we have the same responsibilities to animals? Do we have the same responsibilities to fetuses? Um, do we have the same responsibilities to gay people or black people or women? Or, um, so who you include in your moral um, community is a very big question. I have one further thing to add, and then I'll shut up. So <laughs> That is the golden rule. Uh, it's, uh, there are three moral absolutes, roughly, I mean, I'm sure there are more, but um, the utilitarianism, 
Um, so produce the greatest happiness of the greatest number. That's one moral absolute. Any utilitarian is an absolutist. They believe that this rule is true everywhere for everyone at every time. There's the um, Kantian or the deontological categorical imperative. And one way you might put that is to um, treat um, uh, rationality. Oh, God, I'm sorry, I'm being Kantian. Treat rationality in yourself. <coughs> and others always uh, at the same time as an end. Sorry that's come out so pretentiously, but it's not pretentious, it's, it's actually very meaningful. Um, Kant thinks that actually what determines the, the moral community is the capacity for reason. And the reason for that is because the capacity for reason is the capacity for choice. Um, for, for freedom and therefore you've got to treat all rational animals yourself and others and you might think of the Christian thing love others as you love yourself so you'd also be acting morally wrongly if you were putting yourself down um, as well as if you're putting others down and what you've got to do is never treat them as a means to your end you've got to treat them always at the same time as an end in themselves so what that means is if I ask Bill to lend me his pen. Okay, uh, I've treated him as a means to my own end. Okay, I wanted to make an example of getting him to do something for me. But he could have said, no, I need it, couldn't he? So I wasn't taking the choice away from him. Actually, there is a bit of a problem here because there's a bit of a power imbalance. I'm up here, he's down there, and, and so on. But do you see, um, I, if, I can, if I want David to do something for me, Okay, and I think to myself, well, yeah, but I know David, he's not going to want to do that. So if I tell him that if he does that, he'll get this, he will do that. You see, I'm treating him as a means to my own end. I'm treating him as a tool. I want something done, and I'm not letting him choose for himself. I'm deceiving him in order to get him to do it. And Kant would say that that's wrong, because I, I'm treating somebody who is an end in themselves as a tool, as a means to my own end only. So that's one golden rule. Uh, sorry, that's one absolute. That's another. And the other is the golden rule, which is treat um, others as you would be treated. And the, the so-called platinum rule is unnecessary, in my opinion, um, because it's there only because this is misunderstood so often. Um, when I say treat others as you would be treated, I don't look at you and I think the way I should treat you is the way I would want to be treated. Okay, that, that's the wrong way of doing it. What I do is I work out what you want and I work out how I should treat you given that you would want to be treated that way because I would want to be treated how I want to be treated and therefore you want to be treated as you want to be treated. So I don't treat you as I would want to be treated because that would involve your wearing a lot more dresses than you probably do. <laughs> do, do you see? Do, so you see the platinum rule is actually postulated because this one is misunderstood so often. Um, you're, you're not putting yourself into the shoes of others. You're, you're actually trying to find out how the world looks from their perspective. So these, these are three different types of moral absolute. Um, and all of them 
um, require some understanding of the moral community. So the greatest happiness is the greatest number. Well, are we going to count animals as part of the greatest number? It's going to have a very different effect on whether we, we should be vegetarian or not if we do include animals. Do we include fetuses? If fetuses are part of the greatest number, then probably we shouldn't have as many abortions as we do. If fetuses aren't part of the greatest number, then who cares if there are more abortions than there already are? You know, so whether fetuses count or not, very important part of your moral decision-making. Um, and if, you know, I hear that they hanged a, a woman yesterday for having killed the man who was raping her, that makes me want to kill somebody, actually. Um, but, but if you're not including women in the greatest number, then, then your moral decisions are going to be very different. And if Hitler was a, an excellent utilitarian but just didn't count Jews, you can see where he's coming from. And maybe our unwillingness to count embryos is the same as Hitler's unwillingness to count Jews. You know, actually these are questions that we've got to ask ourselves whenever we assume that we know who is part of the moral community and who isn't. Because a hundred years ago it would have been a very different moral community. So who do you think is in the moral community? Well, my personal view is completely irrelevant um, because you must work out for yourself who you think is part of the moral community. I mean, I'm not a vegetarian. That might tell you that I don't include animals in my moral community. On the other hand, I do think you've ought to eat happy meat. Um, so I don't think you ought to eat meat that's, um, you know, battery farmed chickens and things like that. Um, so maybe I do include animals because I count their happiness. Maybe I'm a good utilitarian. I don't think dying is the worst thing to happen in life. So my view is irrelevant. <laughs> I, I, I'm just intrigued because um, I'm thinking about children, very young <coughs> children, who perhaps have had, let's say, damaged upbringings, and they don't have the ability to make the sort of rational, golden golden thoughts mm. because they don't they wouldn't treat people uh, as they were because they don't quite understand you know they don't understand well children are not yet moral agents of course no, no, that's right so but my, my, the way this goes on it just seems to me it, it doesn't happen but should a, a simple form of philosophy not be in primary education because you don't come across on the whole well, actually, there, there is a, a movement called Philosophy for Children or Philosophy for Kids. I think there are two different movements, actually, um, and you can check them out on the web. Um, and they do talk about in, in schools about philosophy like this in a way that's actually very conducive to the um, children's learning about things like this or learning to think about things like this. Um, teaching philosophy in schools is a bit different because, of course, you'd, you'd actually have to have trained philosophers doing it, in my opinion. Mm. I mean, it's no good having somebody who, who fancies too, philosophy. Because a lot, of the, a lot of the way people are happens in the first few years of their lives. And if the Jesuits are to believe all the way. <laughs> yeah, but I, I mean, if you think about these things, I mean, these would be lousy school rules, wouldn't they? All of them. 
I mean, produce the greatest happiness to the greatest number. A child hasn't the experience to know what makes people happy, and he doesn't have the experience to put himself into the shoes of others in order to determine what some, you know, whether somebody else would be happy. Um, I mean, this one as a school rule would be pathetic, wouldn't it? I, I mean, I had to explain it all to you. And actually, the, the knee-jerk misunderstanding of that, that the platinum rule was introduced to, to overcome, is so widespread... Um, as, as to be, you know, again, it renders that one, uh, again, a lousy school rule. And so you generate secondary rules like don't kill, don't lie, be kind, etc., etc. And those are the ones you bring. Mrs. Sorry. Whatever her name was. Mrs. Do as you would be done by. Yes. And water babies? Water babies, yes, yes. indeed, yes. Because that has stuck with me since I was. Oh, I'm sure, yes. Well, yeah. And basically, it is the golden rule. Yeah. Except she rather misapplied it, didn't she? Also, if I, I, it's very a long time since I read that. Um, yes, Mrs. Do as you would by, be done by us, that one. Could you clarify, and I'm taking up on your question, the difference between soft determinism and libertarianism? Because if I understand it, hard determinism is that every decision is coarsely determined, and libertarian is that. All or some decisions are free to choose. So what is Right. Um, causal, uh, hard determinism and libertarianism agree that hard determinism is incompatible. How do you spell incompatible? With freedom. Okay. And the soft determinist disagrees with that. Okay, um, so if I put not soft determinism here, soft determinism and libertarianism both agree that some actions um, are freely chosen. And the hard determinist does not agree with that. Okay, um, and actually I think that's probably just about done it. Does that help? Well, um, sorry, hold on, are free, uh, compatible with free choice. I mean, that was just a, a, an unfortunate thing about the words I chose. Um, I, I could have chosen more carefully. Um, just think about hard determinism and libertarianism. Both believe that hard determinism and libertarianism are incompatible. That if an action is causally determined, it is not freely chosen. If it's freely chosen, it's not hard it's not causally determined. But the soft determinist will disagree with that. But the soft determinist and the libertarian both agree that some actions are freely chosen. Um, but the hard determinist will disagree with that. Well, because the soft determinist doesn't believe that freedom is incompatible with hard determinism. Um, so the soft determinist believes that freedom is compatible with hard determinism. Um, I mean, I wonder, uh, let me see if I can do a Venn diagram here. Can I do a Venn diagram here? 
So, sorry, say that again. You, you said that soft determinism says something about it is in agreement with hard determinism, which would make them the same. You just mean that freedom is compatible with determinism, not with hard determinism. You said. Uh, hard yes, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm lost. Let me see if I can do a Venn diagram. Um, no, I can't draw a Venn diagram. No, I can't think clearly enough to do that. I don't know what your problem is. It, it seems to me actually obvious that from the two things I've said, you can work out how soft determinism, hard determinism, and libertarianism work together. Okay, you want to see how soft determinism is, differs from libertarianism. from libertarianism. Okay, the libertarian. Can anyone tell me? Believes everything is freely chosen. Bel no, doesn't believe everything. It believes some things are freely chosen. Some things, uh, some actions, let's say, are freely chosen, and. Therefore, not causally determined, because they think causal determinism and freedom is incompatible. Okay, the soft determinists would agree that some actions are freely chosen, uh, but this does not mean does not mean that they're not, not determined. causally determined. Yep. Uh, and I'm sorry, whoever was talking about double negatives uh, in here, that, um, there's another one for you. So do you, see that, do you see that that differs between... So soft, libertarian believes that some actions are freely chosen, not all, um, and therefore those freely chosen actions are not causally determined because they think causal determinism and freedom are incompatible. Okay? But the soft determinist would agree with the libertarian that some actions are freely chosen, but the soft determinist believes that freedom is compatible with causal determinism. So is the soft determinist really saying that some actions are freely chosen and those Freely chosen actions are also causally determined. That's exactly what the, that person. And uh, that's what I say that there's a logic. Um, you would have to read them, but that's what I tried to explain when I tried to say that they say what um, causally determines your freely chosen actions is your own beliefs and desires, and there is no more to freedom than that. But uh, I mean, it's quite it's uh, quite a sophisticated view. Um, you know, it's, it's not, uh, there are many, many good philosophers who are soft determinists. But, but do you get the difference between the two now? Okay. Right. Another question. David. Um, coming back to this morning's lecture. Uh, I can't remember. Oh, yes. Right. Science. Yep. Uh, and you, um, you say that. Uh, Speak up. Facts are statements. I didn't say facts are statements. Uh, okay, how did, how, did, how did you put it? I did say statements are facts. Statements are facts. Okay. Um, but there are lots of other types of fact apart from statements. So I'm not saying facts are statements. Facts include states of affairs, perceptions, thoughts, statements. Okay, you're, I, 
I understood from what you were saying that you were implying that science works on only... What, what I did say is that the, state, the facts that underpin scientific theories are statements. That's so, what I said. Okay, yeah. so are you, are you implying that science is necessarily a linguistic model? Um, a scientific theory has to be linguistic. Yes, because what is a theory but a, but a, a set of logically interrelated beliefs or s expressed in statements? I mean, when you read a scientific paper, you're reading a lot of statements that have meanings. Yes. And that, that's how theories are s expressed. That's what a theory is. So does that mean that if, if you were the only person left on Earth that you couldn't do science? Um, that's an I it's an interesting question. Actually, if you were the only person left on Earth, you probably couldn't do science because science is, is essentially third-person corroborated, isn't it? Um, do you see what I mean? You, you, couldn't, um, you couldn't check with anyone else that your results were acceptable. But can I give you a, a slightly different thought <coughs> experiment, but, but which is your thought experiment, but very common in philosophy, is if you were born Robinson Crusoe, which is nonsense, of course, because you wouldn't survive your first year, but let's pretend. Um, okay, you're born um, on a desert island. Um, would you be able to speak language at all? Um, so is, is language an essentially a communal thing? Or, or another way of putting it, could thought come before language, or does language come with thought? And, and there are interesting empirical implications on this because actually feral children, children who are not brought up by language users, if they're, if they're found before a certain age, I think it's about five or something, they will acquire language. Um, but if they're found after that age, they don't acquire language. They, they seem to be forever without language and without thought, um, or they have very rudimentary thoughts. Well, not necessarily, because actually that it, it involves a very interesting... I mean, do animals think is a very important question. Um, because you might... Th if you think that language is just the expression of a, a pre-existing thought, you know, there's the thought, and it's <coughs> entirely contingent whether it's expressed in language or not, um, then you're likely to think that animals have thought even though they don't have language but actually lots of philosophers think that um, language uh, that thought is essentially expressed in language that without language you don't have thought um, nobody's doubting that you have experiences and you ha things make you happy and things make you sad animals are sentient there's there's no doubt about that well actually i can tell you a reason for doubting that but anyway let, <laughs> let's leave that on one side um but the idea that they have thoughts okay they they you might think they do things but let's think about the idea of an action at the moment um there are actions and there are behaviors and that's quite an important distinction. If I trip over a rug, um, that's not an action of mine, is it? It's something that's happened to me. Okay? If I pretend to trip over the rug, that is something I've chosen to do, isn't it? I've done it for reasons. 
maybe I want to make you laugh or I want to use this as an example or something like that. If I pretend to trip over a rug, that must have been chosen by me. Okay, it's not something that's happened to me. And that distinction between a, a chosen action and a behaviour is a very important one. And the reason it's important is, is because actually there are a hell of a lot of behaviours that are not actions. And they're not just trippings over the rug. I mean, when you, you're driving your car and you hear the ambulance behind you, you, you turn to go off the road. That's, that's a classically conditioned behaviour. Um, it's not... You can give yourself reasons for having to do it, but you probably didn't do it for reasons. You were caused to do it by the sounds of the ambulance. Because you've... Just like the dog salivates to the bell rather than the food, it's associated the, the pres presentation of the food and the bell um, and therefore it salivates to the, the latter, not, the, uh, not just the former. And all the behaviours that animals engage in are also behaviours that we engage in. Most of your behaviours are not actions. Most of your behaviours are not rational. Most of the things you do are not rational. They're just, they're classically conditioned, they're instrumentally conditioned, they're habituated, there are lots of other me mechanisms other than reason. Are we only concerned in philosophy with deliberate action? We're only concerned in morality with chosen actions because to the extent that we don't choose our actions, we're not morally responsible for them. I and mean, if, if falling over the rug, tripping over the rug, I happen to kill Bill... Um, I'm not guilty of murdering him, am I? Um, actually, if I pretend to trip over the rug in order to kill Bill, that's a bit different, isn't it? Um, then I've intended to do it. Um, so it's only murder if my intentions are... So, yes, the, uh, the distinction between actions and behaviours is hugely important um, because it's actually only actions that are morally valuable. And I think it's only actions that uh, it's only moral behaviours that are freely chosen. Actually, is it, I think. Isn't karma? Speak up. Is Daniel Kahneman showing increasingly ah. that things that you think of as action? He's showing empirically that things you think of as as free actions are actually we don't really have that clear on the subject of the border between the two sometimes. Yep. Um, I, in case you couldn't hear it back, um, she was saying that Daniel Kahneman, the chap who wrote Thinking Fast and Slow, has got empirical evidence for things that we think of as actions and the result of logical thought are actually not the result of logical thought as well, uh, at all. And, I mean, actually, he, he, um, in, in the latest book I've written uh, called Critical Reasoning, colon, a romp through the foothills of logic, which, of course, you will all now rush out and buy. Um, it's, an, it's only available as, a, as an e-book, um, and you'll find it on my website. But OK, after that little advertisement break, what was I saying? Oh, yes. Um, Descartes, you've heard that name. Descartes makes a distinction between um, the will and the understanding and he, what he wants to explain is why we go wrong in our thinking okay because uh, what he's looking at is how we justify our claims to knowledge and later on he, later on he looks at um, well okay he's explained um, that we can have knowledge and now he wants to know how we make such a mess of it 
so often. Um, and what he explains is that we have, there are two faculties of mind, he doesn't call them that, but uh, he calls them the will and the understanding. And he says that the will um, is completely free. Um, it can range over everything, but the understanding is limited. And he said that um, our senses present to us things to believe. And we have a choice. We can either believe them or not. We can choose not to believe them. So we can withhold assent to these beliefs that are put to us. Um, but actually, we're lazy. We don't exercise our rationality at all. We just take it at face value. And when we wantonly um, accept something, when our free will is used instead of to exercise reason, but to, to just accept everything at face value, we will go wrong. And what we should do is exercise our will rationally um, to, in order to withhold assent until our understanding has caught up with this. Now, if you apply that to thinking fast and thinking slow, Descartes was there hundreds of years before Daniel Kahneman was. And the only interesting thing uh, sorry, uh, it's a very interesting book. I like the book. But the fact is that he's given empirical evidence for almost exactly what Descartes was saying several hundred years ago. Um, because it, it's actually quite obvious that we have the capacity to just say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, we all know people who just accept everything at face value and don't question anything. And we also know people who, who play the sceptic, you know, tell me this table exists, you know, they're not really playing the sceptic actually, but, but the, the sceptic is somebody who wants their understanding to catch up with their will. Um, and if you think of that as the system two, think, the system one thinking and that as the system two thinking, you've got exactly what Daniel Kahneman is claiming. I don't think he'd like me for saying it, by no, the way. That's a little bit dismissive of Kahneman as well, because you can't claim that Descartes understood empirically why he was... No, no. He, his, his claim wasn't an empirical claim at all. But what he did was that he was um, cashing out the concepts of will and understanding. But it just shows you how far you can get on cashing out concepts. You still need the empirical work because it, it might have turned out to be differently. But what the empirical work that Kahneman's done has shown is that Descartes was absolutely right about this. And all he did is sit in his oven and think. <laughs> when, you've written, when you've written behaviours and action, mm. are the behaviours that you were talking about the same thing as reactions? Well, I mean, again, that's uh, reactions, instincts, are one type of behaviour that isn't rational. Um, it's not irrational either, it's non-rational. Um, so, so if you think about a hardwired behaviour, um, so if you think about the, um, the moth fluttering into the flame, okay, that's an evolved behaviour which is hardwired. The moth flutters towards anything um, that, that's light, okay, and what he's actually going for is the moon. The idiot thinks it's the moon, it burns its wings. Um, the only reason that that appears irrational to us is because um, his environment has changed since he evolved. Um, so it's no longer the moon. But, but you see, there's a hard wiring um, that means he goes towards whatever the, the brightest light source is. 
Um, and that would appear perfectly rational except for the fact that his environment has changed. Any hardwired behaviour is going to appear rational because it'll be adaptive to its environment. That's what an evolved behaviour is. It, it evolves within an environment because it's adaptive. It leads to flourishing and survival. Um, and so the bird who flies away um, whenever anyone comes near his nest. That's not a reasoned behaviour. The bird doesn't think to himself, oh, I don't want anyone near my nest. He doesn't form the belief that fluttering away will, will distract people. No, it's just a, a straightforward, hardwired behaviour. When this stimulus happens, that is how he'll respond. So are we mainly reacting? I, no, there are some of our behaviours that are hardwired. If I throw my board rubber at you, again shows you how old I am, um, you'll duck. Okay, that's a hardwired behaviour. Um, you what about the ambulance? The ambulance isn't a hardwired behaviour, the ambulance is a softwired behaviour. So classical conditioning is another behavioural mechanism like hardwiring, which results in behaviour that, that's um, adaptive to an environment, but it's learnt this time instead of that's evolved. So you might think of that as a reaction, but it's not a hardwired reaction, it's a softwired reaction, it's a learnt reaction. But uh, what I'm really saying is we've got these things which you say are quite rare, like actions, which we do very seldom. Are the rest of the things that they're doing most of the time, which you've called behaviours, are they actually basically reactions? Well, what I'm trying to say is that you can say that if you like, but then reaction includes a lot of different behavioural mechanisms. Hardwired behavioural mechanism is a reaction that's evolved. But they are reactions. I if mean, you like, yep, yep, if, that, if that's what you want to say. Yeah, a classical conditioning, you could say, is a reaction to the environment in which you've grown up. And, and we all react in that way to ambulance sirens because that's how we've grown up, uh, you know, how we've learnt to behave. Um, but classically conditioned behaviours are not rational behaviours. They're not irrational either. They're non-rational. Are you saying that behaviour is a word that means non-rational? I'm using behaviour to mean non-action here, yes. And the actions are chosen for reasons. They're implicated in the, in the production of an action will always be a reason, whereas there are no reasons involved in the causal antecedents of behaviours, the way I'm using the word. Um, you had a question, then you did. At the back, didn't you have a question? Oh, sorry. Um, where does intuition fit? Um, intuition, that... Uh, Intuition is usually a belief for which we can't give reasons. Um, and I think intuition is hugely important. Um, so, for example, you're all sitting here, you're looking at me, and you're sometimes frowning, and you're sometimes nodding, and some of you are nodding most of the time, and I'm looking at you a lot. <laughs> um, and the reason you're all doing this is because you have intuitions as I'm speaking. So you listen to something I say and you think, that sounds right, and you nod. And I say something else and you think, maybe. <coughs> and you, you start frowning. And your intuition is telling you that there's something wrong with that. Is that fair enough? Okay. At the moment, you can't give me reasons for what's wrong with it, but, but it doesn't sound right to you. 
Now, you wouldn't be rational if you didn't have this sort of intuition. It's this sort of intuition that gets you thinking, well, I wonder if it's the fact that the wound isn't covered that allows the maggots to get into the wound. Okay, it's an intuition. There seems to be a bit of a correlation there, but you don't know it's a correlation at the moment. You just think it might be. Your intuition suggests that this is a path worth, worth considering. Um, some people think that intuition is, is rubbish. I, I think that that is so wrong. I think it's our intuitions have absolutely got to start the mode of inquiry. But actually, if you leave intuitions as the final word, then you're not exercising your rationality properly because intuition's got to be a starting point. What you've then got to do is pin them down. So if you think that something I've said is wrong, what you've got to do is to work out what it is about what I said that's wrong. And while you're doing that, you might actually come to think that maybe I wasn't wrong after all. Or you might find a reason for thinking that I'm wrong and you put it to me as a question. So you try and pin down your intuitions rationally. Um, so does that explain? So I think a, an intuition is a, is a belief that you can't, for which you can't yet give reasons. So you, you, have, you believe that I'm wrong, but you can't say why. So can that be modified by experience? And well, exp I mean, if you're, doing, if, if you're <coughs> wondering whether it's, there is a correlation between air getting into the wounds and maggots forming, the only way you can test it is by experience. Um, but if it's the sort of belief I'm likely to be putting forward, um, it's unlikely to be testable by experience. You're going to have to do it by reflection. Could you just go further into that point again? Is it the difference between things that you can test through reflection and things that can be empirically tested? That's why I was wondering about my free will question earlier. Uh, to what extent free will can ever be tested empirically? Um, well, okay. Um, an empirical test involves observing the world, seeing what is actually the case. Um, and logical um, doesn't involve observing the world, it, it involves reflecting on um, arguments, concepts, thoughts. That basically is the difference between the two. I mean, anyone, any scientist has to use both of these. And as I said, any, any philosopher who tries to talk about science without learning a bit about the empirical results is, also, is just as likely to go wrong. So I'm not saying these are, these are mutually exclusive by any means, but they are rather different methods of finding knowledge about the world. Or, find, sorry, finding knowledge. It might not be about the world. It, certainly not if you think that the world is this world. Of course, if all possible worlds exist, then the world includes all possible. Mm -hmm. So, sorry, so could, would you like to, to give me the example, really, of what a logical inquiry into free will looks like versus an empirical? Well, a logical inquiry into free will is going, well, okay, um, what makes us think there's free will? What, what are the intuitions that tell us that free will exists? Let's 
um, okay, I think I've got free will because I act freely myself. Well, okay, what is it for me to act freely? Um, what's the difference between an action and a behaviour? And a so, do you see? I'm I'm taking apart all the concepts that go into my thought about free will, um, trying to find out what, what I actually mean when I say I have free will. Um, and once I know, so once I've done this metaphysical inquiry into free will, once I've decided that it exists, okay, so I have free actions on my ontology, um, and I ask about the nature of free will, which is again a metaphysical inquiry, I could then go about saying, well, okay, is there any experiment I can design that gives me empirical evidence for the existence of free will? Um, and when you ask me, is there any? I can't really answer that. Um, I don't know. I'd, I'd have to give it a lot more thought. But here's an interesting thought experiment. Um, yes, you have heard it before. Um, think about rationality. And I, I've talked about all these um, mechanisms of behaviour that are not rational, but they're not irrational either because they're non-rational. Um, in the beginning, do you remember what I'm going to say? Bah. Um, okay, if this is the class of all behaviours, we used to think, didn't we, that some of them were caused um, and most of them were reasoned. So mountains exploded because they were angry and rivers um, burst their banks because they were angry. Or so um, we used to make sacrifices um, so that the mountain wouldn't explode and so on. So we understood nearly all events in terms of reasons and free choice and so on. So um, it, it was, if you like, a very God-inhabited world at that point, wasn't it? And we simply didn't understand the causal mechanisms behind many of these things. Um, actually, this has changed almost entirely, hasn't it? Science has been so successful that we now understand the causes behind many things, and there are actually very few things left that we know can be explained only by appeal to reasons. For example, uh, we tend to think that... Um, I mean, there is reason to think of most animals uh, that all their behaviour can be explained causally. So, so let me do the woodlouse one. So you can leave if you like, Bill. <laughs> um, so we think woodlice like it under rocks, that they believe it's damp under rocks and therefore they <coughs> intend to go under the rocks. But if I tell you that actually that woodlice embody a mechanism that means that whenever it's humid around them, sorry, whenever it's dry around them, they move. And they move at a speed determined um, by the extent of the dryness. And they move in a direction determined by whichever way they happen to be pointed. Okay, so they, they run fast if it's dry around them. Uh, and they slow down as things get more humid, as the, things get damper. Um, and they stop when it gets damp enough. And where they stop will be somewhere it's damp, under a rock, under a log, under something like that. Um, once you know all this, um, 
you could say that would lice still have beliefs and desires and things like that or you could say actually what the new mechanism of behavior has done has shown that we actually don't need beliefs and desires to explain would lice behavior um, would lice don't have a picture of the world at all they're just mechanisms they're input output mechanisms if you make it dry around them this is what they do make it damp enough this is what they do etc and so um, we remove from our ontology woodlouse reasons. Okay, they don't have reasons. They're, they're all, everything they do is caused. And we can do this really quite high up the phylogenetic scale. Um, we, can ex we can actually actively explain all the behavior of various animals without appealing to reasons. Now, just possibly, um, this is gonna continue. I mean, there's a very good inductive argument for thinking that this will just continue until this category is rubbed out entirely. Um, because inductively, if in the past we've always managed to explain things that have been, we thought have been reasons <coughs> in terms of causes, maybe we'll carry on doing it. And eventually we'll show that there aren't any reasons anywhere. Um, and there are some people called the eliminativists, some philosophers and some neuroscientists, and some philosopher neuroscientists, because there are people who do both, um, who believe that that's exactly what we're going to show. We're going to eliminate beliefs and desires. We're going to eliminate reasons. And actually, Daniel Kahneman gets quite close to saying this, um, because what he's saying is that a lot of the behaviours that we think are reasoned are not reasoned at all. They're caused by mechanisms that actually we can understand scientifically. Um, so, okay, this is interesting, isn't it? Because are they showing that we, uh, we have reason to believe that we don't have reasons? We have reason to believe, but uh, I mean, that makes it sound as if it's in con uh, um, contradictory, this view. But actually it's not contradictory at all um, because if they can show, I mean, if hard determinism is true, it's true now. You know, the world is not going to change when we discover hard determinism, or if we discover hard determinism is true, it will be true now, and what we discover is that it's true. Nothing will change. Um, so the way we behave at the moment is entirely consistent with hard determinism being true. So, um, we might find that actually all the behavior that you take to be reasoned is explicable in terms of if I look at your brain. So I can learn enough about the, the way the brain works to be able to um, <coughs> predict everything that you do. So just like the woodlouse, I can say exactly what it's going to do at any time given the prior conditions to its action and, and the laws of nature, especially the laws governing. I might be able to do that to you one day. And if I can, does that show you don't have beliefs, you don't have reasons, you're not rational, you're not... Well, does it? Doesn't it? You shake your head. Well, you, were you shaking your head to say you don't know? Or? I, 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 exactly that. Very yes. sensible. <laughs> and it's almost impossible to, to know. But it, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I mean, this, is, this is certainly the inductive argument for thinking that this will continue like this, that science will one day explain everything, including all our own behaviours. And if it does, what it'll show is that, well, 
I, okay, there are two things we'd have to show. Two, uh, sorry, two things we might show. I'm about to run out of... Um, but that's all right. I'm also about to run out of time. Um, so, all behaviour is causally determined. Some behaviour is freely chosen for reasons. Okay, we've actually come back to the hard determinism, soft determinism bit, because it might be that when we show that all behaviour is caused, um, that instead of showing that no behaviour is reasoned, we show that some reasons are causes. And that's the, hard that's the soft determinism again. Do you see how we've got to the same point, but by a different route? So the eliminativists are the people who believe that science will eventually show that we are not rational. Um, there are some people like me who think that um, the fact that we've shown so many behaviours are causal is a bit like the monkey halfway up the tree <laughs> on the way to the moon. You know, there's going to be a principled obstacle any minute now. <laughs> it thinks it's going well, but, but it's going to hit a problem. Anytime. And I think that rationality is real. Um, and I don't think it's reducible to, to um, causal determinism. So I'm here. Um, but there are some people who think that they can show that reasons are causes, that mental states are physical states and so on. And, and they have very good arguments. I mean, they're in the ascendant at the moment. Um, but you see, again, you've got those three situations. The eliminativists who think that we're not rational at all, people like me who think that rationality puts a principled obstacle in the way of science. It is never the case that science will ever understand everything because our rational behaviour, of which I've said that there's very little, but the rational behaviour that we do have is not such that it can be understood by science. And there are some people who think that science can understand our rational behaviour. And what is your, what is your logical Um, I think reasons will be forever outside the um, run of science because I think reasons and morality go together. I think that science can't see the shoulds. Science can see the way things are. It can't see the way the thing, that things should be. And I think that the way that things should be is part of the furniture of the world that really exists. I mean, that's putting it in a nutshell. I would have to... I mean, any philosopher listening to this would be thinking of a thousand different objections to what I'm saying. But you've got to start somewhere, yeah. Yeah. How do you <laughs> Go on, Jim. How do you, how do you get over the, the... You say that science will never be able to do this. I mean, you're also saying that your reasons, your rationality, can impact the real world by your actions. And therefore, it must be empirically accessible? No, no, my, my action will have consequences in the physical world and those will be empirically accessible. Um, my decision to act is made for reasons that won't be empirically accessible. Okay, here's, here's how I... I mean, this is a short way of explaining it. Um, actually, I was just about to... I had a way of explaining it, it's completely gone. Um, yeah. Okay, 
I believe that there are two principles underlying our understanding of the world, our human understanding of the world. I think that um, there's the principle of the uniformity of nature. Okay, we cannot understand the physical world without relying on that principle. And the reason for that is it's that principle that tells us when we're going wrong. So if I think A causes B, um, then I have evidence that I've got that wrong if I have an A without a B. You see, so there's a lack of uniformity and that counts as evidence for error. And that's absolutely crucial to the understanding of the physical universe. But I think that in order to understand you, I need the principle of charity. Um, it's no good by looking at what you're doing and saying, okay, he's a man of a certain age, a certain background, you know, he will behave like this. It won't hack it. You know, it'll, it'll enable me to do quite a lot, but it won't enable me to understand you. My only way of understanding you is by assuming that you're rational and that you're morally okay. You know, you, I don't mean that you won't go wrong at the edges, but, but on the whole, I can expect you to tell the truth most of the time. I can expect you to be kind most of the time. I can expect you to care about people most of the time and so on. Uh, and that's, and I think you're rational most of the time. I think most of your beliefs are true. I think most of your beliefs are justified. Um, again, not all of them, but I think these things are true. And when I try and understand you, when you're using language, when we're, we're discussing things, um, when you say something that strikes me as mad, or just plain false or irrational, I have evidence for error. And so here, you've got lack of uniformity is evidence for error. And here, lack of rationality is evidence for error. Um, so when you say something that strikes me as obviously false, then I've got to think either you're wrong, your justification for your belief is not good, or I'm wrong in thinking that you're wrong, or maybe we're both wrong. Um, but I've got evidence for error in this lack of rationality. And I've got to notice, I've got to assume that these are not the same thing. Um, the soft determinist would want to say that this can be reduced to this or something, whereas I, I don't think that can be reduced to that. So that, that's basically my reason. I, charity is invisible to science. Science doesn't care about the fact that, you're most, that you, most of the time you tell the truth. Science doesn't care, nor can it see that most of the time you're kind, etc. And you might think, well, okay, there's evolutionary psychology and so on, but this has got to use an instrumental definition of kindness of, and value, moral value and so on. And again, I don't think that'll hack it. Um, I think it gets us so far, but it doesn't get us to where we want to go. Anyway, that's you asked for my reasons. That's my reason. So Go on. You, neuroscience gets better. I mean, it explains more and more about how we work. It might prove me wrong. It might be wrong, yeah. Mm. But it, it, um, it's, it, it does seem to advance. It doesn't sit there doing nothing. Certainly not. Um, you're saying that there is a limit to how far neuroscience is going to get. I do. That that's what I believe, and it could be that neuroscience. It could be that one 
day I'll be proven wrong. I mean, let, let's, imagine the, let's imagine that neuroscience gets to the point where actually it enables me to predict everything you're going to do. So, so instead of looking into your eyes and saying, what do you believe about the fat man? You know, would you push that? How, how could you push the fat man? Um, you know, instead of engaging you as a person, um, I would have my little thing that's tied into your brain um, and I would look at your look at this and I'd say well I know what sorry I've forgotten your name Chris. Chris thinks about this you know I don't actually have to ask you because I can just look at your brain and tell you what you think about and don't I mean neuroscience is a hundred miles from anything like this at the moment and any neuroscience would agree to that but but in saying that neuroscience will one day be able to explain everything that we do, including everything we do, or we think we do for reasons, that's what it would have to do. It would have to enable me to, to predict and explain everything that, that I at the moment explain by appeal to the principle of charity, by appeal instead to the principle of the uniformity of nature. There are lots of hands going up now. I'm not ignoring you, but I'm seeing... I wondered about this this morning. We were talking about perception of colour, about it being subjective. Nobody would ever know how the perceive colour. And I wondered then if neuroscience would ever be able to do that, to actually get into a, a, a perception. I think neuroscience can, can do some completely amazing things. I mean, for example, um, one of the things that people are very exercised about, and I find it really interesting, is, is that we, we've got ways by which disabled people can move things by the power of thought. You know, I mean, that's really extraordinary. Um, now, if that were an action, of course, we, we might be getting somewhere interesting. Um, as I've told you, I think that that's not so much an action as a behaviour, so it's not surprising that neuroscience can explain that. Um, think about, you know, I have a little thought experiment you might like. So everyone, when they're born, gets the top of their skull removed so we can see everyone's brain, okay, and we can see... But, but lovers like to wear fluffy hats so that they can look into uh, their, each other's eyes and do it the old-fashioned way. Um, but they don't need to, you know, instead they can look at their little machine or in, uh, straight into the brain and, and understand by saying any human being who's such that then their brain does that is thinking this and is about to do that. And, you know, so why would I need to know you, David, in particular? You know, there would be no reason to get to know an individual, would there? Um, because we, we have general laws, which is what science is about, that would enable us to explain you as an instance of a general law. You can have the general rule that there are going to be uncertainties. Yes, but it's not very helpful, is it? <laughs> but it happens quite a lot in physics. Isn't it? <laughs> uh, well, yes, indeed it does, but it, it's not very helpful even no, in physics, is it? No. But it works. And that's, and that's the well, it's true it. that there are uncertainties, yes. Well, I'm, I'm defining thing, things about us that might be uniquely human. Well, I, I mean, there are a number. I mean, in order to get to think about things like this, you've got to do an awful lot of hack work first. I, 
when I get students coming to me and they're talking about the meaning of life and so on, I, it's not that philosophy isn't about the meaning of life, but you don't get to the meaning of life until you've done 20 years worth of logic, um, which you know, can be a bit off-putting. <laughs> and I shouldn't really be telling you that. <laughs> but it is true. And the fact is, in order to get to think about really interesting things about this, you, you have to learn about um, what the principle of the uniformity of nature is, what the principle of charity is, what the arguments are for each of them, what the implications are of each of them. You know, so you're getting the headlines of my 30-odd years of working in philosophy. But the thing is, whatever I can do, you can do too, if you put in the hard work. And I think that's one of the most exciting things about philosophy, actually, is it enables you to think about the most extraordinary things, things that really, really matter. Things like, you know, are we different uh, from the rest of life? Um, you know, is there something about our humanity that makes us different? And if so, what is it? Is it, is it just um, anthropocentrism? You know, is it just arrogance that makes us think that we're different? Or, or is there something that really makes us different? And if so, what is it? Um, and morality, you know, I mean, lots of people think that it's this amorphous thing that you can't really think about. Nonsense, of course you can think about it. Human beings can think about anything. And that's what's so exciting about philosophy, to my mind. Hey, that's a really good note to start finish on, isn't it? <laughs> Okay, let's finish <laughs> on that note. Thank you. Thank you.